0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you will find it to be spiritually edifying. So, I'll turn in our Bibles to the scripture reading for this morning. Book of Revelation, chapter 19. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, "Hallelujah!" Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. True and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This morning we continue with our series of sermons on the life of David and we come to 2 Samuel 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, While Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel in their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah thirty-three years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stone masons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as a king over Israel, and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Yafiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, "...as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me." So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, "...do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees." As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, if you have a piece of Canadian currency, say a $10 bill or a loony, you'll, of course, see the image of our queen, Queen Elizabeth II. In fact, for most, if not all of us, she's the only monarch that we've ever seen on Canadian cash and coins. There may be one or two people here this morning who can still remember seeing the picture, the portrait of King George VI on our currency Queen Elizabeth II began to reign on the day King George died, February 6, 1952, over 57 years ago. That was the official beginning of her reign, February 6, 1952. But her coronation ceremony didn't take place until the following year, until June 2, 1953. So the vast majority of us have never seen the coronation of a Commonwealth monarch that we can't be sure whether it will be King Charles or King William, I'd say that it's almost certain that most of us will eventually see such a coronation in our lifetimes. A coronation, you you can watch the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II on the internet. There's lots of videos of it. And if you see that, you know that a coronation is a big deal. With pomp and circumstance, a man or a woman takes the throne of a nation and begins to reign. It's an event of great magnitude, a solemn yet glorious day. And this is the sort of event that we witness in our text for this morning. After years of struggle and difficulty, after years of being on the run and being persecuted by Saul, David finally comes to be king over all Israel. We're going to see that this was God's doing. And so I preach to you God's word with the theme, God establishes his anointed As king over all Israel. And we'll see him receiving the throne. Raising a new place for the throne. And repelling the enemies of the throne. Well last week we looked at 1 Samuel 24. And we saw how David spared Saul's life. Well David ended up on the run again. It's not until the end of 1 Samuel. That Saul is finally dead. And after Saul's death. God comes to David and he tells him to go to Hebron. And there the men of Judah made him king. But they only made him king over that particular tribe, the tribe of Judah. For the rest of Israel, they made Saul's son Ishbosheth king. And what followed was a brief civil war between Ishbosheth and David. And then finally, in chapter four, the chapter right before our text, finally also Ishbosheth Dies, And this clears the way for David to reign, not only over Judah, but over all Israel. Now when we come to 2 Samuel 5, David is reigning over Judah from Hebron. The other tribes of Israel are without a king, rudderless, leaderless, drifting. And they recognize that this situation is not good, it's not ideal, because a, a nation without a king will quickly become a target for the hostile peoples nearby. And so the elders of the people of Israel come to David at Hebron with an olive branch and an offer. They make three arguments to try and persuade David to be their king. First of all, they appeal to their shared ancestry. They say, we are your flesh and bone. Together with David, they're all descended from Jacob. They're brothers, really. And brothers should live at peace with one another. Next, they appeal to history and to David's historical role as a military leader. Even when Saul was king, David was the one who was leading Israel's armies, leading the charge against Israel's enemies. Being out in front of the people, well, that's a natural position for David. But the most important argument comes at the end of verse 2. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. David was anointed way back in 1 Samuel 16, passage that we looked at when we began this series. God promised David that he would be king. Now there's been a lot of resistance along this path to the throne. But God's promises are sure. And steadfast, reliable, God promised David the throne and now it's here. And so these elders are saying to David, come on David, the time is here. This is the time. This is truly the day that Yahweh promised you. David agrees. He can see that God's promises have come true and that this is the legitimate way to the throne over all Israel. David makes a covenant with the Israelite elders. In this covenant, David would agree to be their king and to abide by God's law. And the Israelites would agree to follow David, to serve him, to support his reign. And then David was anointed. He would have had olive oil poured on his head. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, David was already anointed. That's true enough. David was anointed by God in 1 Samuel 16. But now he is anointed by the people. His reign was recognized and appointed by God in advance. But now it's recognized in reality, recognized publicly, acknowledged publicly by all Israel. And the author then gives us some of the details of David's reign, that he reigned a total of 40 years. Seven years, and some in Hebron, and 33 in Jerusalem, over all Israel. And that formula, that was just a, a standard way of not only telling us about the rain, but also the fact that this, what we read about here, was the official inauguration of King David. Here, David finally receives the fullness of all that God had promised. But it came only at the end of a long road. A long road of suffering and trials. Right now, many of us are experiencing a time of deep sorrow. We feel the brokenness of this world, don't we? We see the senselessness of sin and the questions that a a tragic death leaves us with. At a time such as this, we need to be guided by God's Word. We need to allow ourselves to be guided by God's Word. Look at this passage. Look at David. Through all his suffering and trials, David had God's promise. Through all his questions and difficulties, David trusted God's love for him. David believed that God would be His God. He had faith that the Lord w- wouldn't abandon him or forsake him, but that He would be His shepherd. Loved ones we need to do likewise, in, in our sufferings and questions and difficulties. And we need to do that all the more so because of the one to whom David pointed. As you see, loved ones, on on the way to His reign of glory, our Savior also traveled the road of struggle and pain, questions. When He prayed on the Mount of Olives, He was in great anguish. He even prayed, Father, if You are willing, take this cup from Me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And you know that great question that echoed from Golgotha, words that were taken from David himself, My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? He endured all of that for us and in our place. So that when we endure struggles and difficulties, we can know for sure that God's promises, well, they stand firm for us. So that we can be assured of God's nearness and His presence. His desire still, even in this dark hour, to bless us and help us. The Lord Jesus promised in John 16, I tell you the truth, you will weep. And mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And at the end of that chapter, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus says we need to hold on to those words of our Savior, also this morning. We need to hold on to our Savior for to come to terms with this tragic situation that God has brought into our lives. It's only through Christ, through Jesus Christ, that we can find rest and peace with what has happened. Even if all of our questions are never answered to our complete satisfaction... In this life, we have these griefs and sorrows. We have these dark hours. But the Gospel, brothers and sisters, promises us a brighter day. The Gospel tells us that we have a King who reigns in glory. And someday, some wonderful day, we will share in His glory. Oh, look to Him again in faith. Rest and trust in Him who has overcome the world and who reigns in glory. And someday we too will share His glory, share it in unimaginable ways. And Christ's glory was what David's glory here in our text pointed to. And that glory of David, while that only grew greater and greater, We're told that David and his men set out to take Jerusalem from the Jebusites. Jerusalem. David wanted Jerusalem for his capital probably because it was central, strategically located. Hebron is to the south of Jerusalem in the territory of the tribe of Judah. The northern tribes probably wouldn't have been very happy or comfortable with a a capital that far south. Jerusalem would have been A compromise location. And as such, it would have been excellent for that. It was also a great location from a military point of view. It was located on the top of a mountain, with deep valleys on three sides, easily defensible. Now, it's important for us to recognize that this isn't the first time that we read about Jerusalem in the Bible. This isn't the first time we read about the Jebusites in the Bible. Already way back in Genesis 15-21, God had promised Abraham that he would give his descendants the land of the Jebusites. In other words, Jerusalem is part of what God promised Abraham. Now in Judges chapter 1, the tribe of Judah conquered Jerusalem. But the only thing they did, the only thing they did was significant, but... Not enough. They raised it to the ground. They didn't settle it, which is what they should have done. Consequently, the Jebusites who lived there, they simply came back. They ran away while their city was being destroyed. And then later on, they came back and they rebuilt. And then later in Judges chapter 1, we read about the Benjamites. They come along and they also attack Jerusalem. And they did settle there but they didn't do anything about the Jebusites. Despite God's command to rid the land of the original inhabitants, the tribe of Benjamin allowed the Jebusites to go on living in Jerusalem, and eventually they dominated the city once again. So the history of Jerusalem involves two things. On the one hand, it involves a promise from God. And on the other hand, it features failure on the part of Israel. That's been the story of Jerusalem up to this point in history, here in 2 Samuel 5. But today, here in that chapter, that story of failure comes to an end, and the promise comes to fulfillment. David sets out to attack the Jebusites and take Jerusalem once and for all, for good. The Jebusites... When they hear about David's intentions, they send a message to him telling him to back off. They say that David's ambitions will prove vain. The city is a fortress built on a rock. So even the blind and the lame can be left to defend it. There's no way that David can take it. But they don't know that David has some intel He has some inside information about the city. He knows that there's a secret way in, along a water shaft. And he gets his soldiers to take it. And the result is that this seemingly untouchable fortress falls just like that. Now I should say something briefly about verse 8 of our text. You'll notice that there are a couple of footnotes in our Bible translation. This verse... It's very difficult to translate. I don't think it's necessary to go into all the details of the virtues of one translation over another. You know, if that's something that interests you, just let me know, and I can point you to a couple of commentaries that discuss these issues. I think the important point is that David took the city. And his enemies, the Jebusites, those who mocked him and taunted him, they were conquered. And then what follows is David establishing his throne in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, from this point forward, becomes known as the city of David. David reinforces the city, makes a strong fortress, even stronger. And then we find verse 10, And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. David's power and glory, you see, was not because of his own character, not because of anything inside of him, not because of his qualities, but because of the blessing of Yahweh. Unlike Saul, God was with David, blessing him and guiding him. And the glory of David's kingdom is even enhanced from the outside. The author of 2 Samuel inserts something here that happens later on in David's reign, but it still illustrates the splendor of his majesty. And so it fits in this particular place. He speaks about a a king of Tyre. Now Tyre was located further up the coast, towards present-day Lebanon. Hiram was the king of Tyre. We're told that he sent the finest supplies of cedar wood, woodworkers, and stonemasons to Jerusalem to build David's palace, a home for his throne. Hiram, the king of Tyre, a Gentile king, enhances the glory of David in Jerusalem. And David reflected on this, and as he did that, he recognized that this was God establishing him, God blessing him, God exalting his kingdom. This glory was not his own, was not intrinsic to him. It was something that was coming to him from outside. From above. Coming from God. And it wasn't for the sake of David so much as for his people. It wasn't because David himself was so great or so valuable to the Lord, but because of God's people Israel. Because of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God brought these wonderful things to pass because of his love for the apple of his eye. So on the one hand we see David's strength and glory. But the author of 2nd Samuel is not shy about also also about showing us David's stupidity. His folly is found in verse 13. David acts like any other king in his day, taking multiple wives and concubines for himself. Now, we don't hear that word concubine very much nowadays. So maybe some of you are even wondering, what is a concubine? Well, a concubine was simply a female slave. She would most likely be taking care of household duties. That would be her biggest responsibility. But she could also be called on to sleep with the king. Taking multiple wives and concubines may have been the practice of many ancient kings but it was directly forbidden by the law of God in Deuteronomy seventeen. In Deuteronomy seventeen, seventeen, God said that the king of Israel was not to take multiple wives and concubines, concubines for himself. Taking many wives, said God, would result in the king's heart being led astray. And as we survey the names in verse fourteen. That's exactly what we see. You see Solomon mentioned there. We know about Solomon's mother. There are also three others in this list who are also sons of Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. So these are Solomon's brothers, Shamua, Shobab, and Nathan. We all know the sorry history of David and Bathsheba. And this list here in verse 14 is a selective list. If you compare the parallel passage in Chronicles, you'll see many more names. The author could have mentioned more, but he mentions these. And by doing so, he draws attention again to David's sin and his weakness. Someone once compared the glorious kingdoms of David and Solomon to a a prison house film festival. Imagine watching films in prison, having a film festival in a prison. Brief diversions from the grim reality of barbed wire, impenetrable walls, and gun-toting officers. No matter what glory David received, he was still a fallen son of Adam even though he succeeded in taking Jerusalem and conquering the Jebusites, succeeding where others failed. He still had the poison of sin coursing through his veins. Even with all the favor curried by men like Hiram of Tyre, David portrayed only a faint glimmer of the true Messiah. It took centuries... For God's promise to Abraham about the Jebusites, Genesis 15, 21, took centuries for that promise to come true. But it did. It took centuries more. For God's promise about the Messiah, a promise already made in Genesis three fifteen. it took centuries, millennia, for that promise to come true. But it did. Loved ones, we see in this that God's promises don't have expiry dates. Fulfilling God's promises, Jesus came into this world and He is revealed to us as the true Son of David, the only one in whose hands the kingdom is safe. Jesus is the one who is enthroned for His people. John 8.29 tells us that the Lord Jesus is the one who always does what pleases the Father. David was not a one-woman king. But in the New Testament, we see Jesus revealed as the king who only has a heart for one bride. His church. For us. For us, he lived a perfect life. Obeying all of God's commandments perfectly. For us, He gave up His life. For us, He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at God's right hand in glory. And remember, brothers and sisters, God's promises don't have expiry dates. Remember that God's promises don't have expiry dates. When you hear Jesus saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with Me, that you may also be where I am. It's John 14, 1-3. Remember that God's promises don't have expiry dates when you recall that He is returning to judge the living and the dead. And that we will live with Him. And we will reign with Him. And we will share His glory. That glory that we catch a glimpse of here through David. But wherever God's people are on this earth, we also find Satan at work. Satan is working through his minions to try and destroy God's people, trying to destroy God's work in this world. It happened also in David's time. The Philistines heard that David had taken the throne of Israel, and they recognized that this was a potential threat. How long would it be before David would come after them? The best defense is a good offense. And so they take the initiative to go after David. David hears about it. Text says he goes down to the stronghold. It means he prepares himself for battle. The Philistines deploy into the valley of Rephaim, which is a few kilometers to the southwest of Jerusalem. And then David seeks God's will as to what to do in this situation. And how does he do that, you might be wondering? How does David seek God's will? Well, he does that via the Urim and Thummim. That's implied in the words used by the author in the original. The Urim and Thummim were a means of divine revelation. We first read about them in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The Urim and Thummim were a special gem or gems that gave off light. The Urim and Thummim, these special gems, they were in the ephod of the high priest. Ephod was the the garment or piece of equipment that covered the high priest's chest. And the Urim and the Thummim were in the ephod. And the way that it worked was that God would give a special revelation to the high priest. Maybe through a dream or maybe through a vision. Maybe he would hear a voice. The high priest would report the words, and the urim and thummim would confirm what was being said. If it was truly God speaking, then the urim and thummim would give off light, and everyone would know that it was God who had truly spoken. So David, in this situation here in Second Samuel five, he would have prayed, and then he would have gone to Abiathar, the high priest. And Abiathar would give God's answer, and the Urim and Thummim would confirm it. God replies in detail that David should go forward and attack the Philistines. God will surely give him the victory. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? The Philistines are totally routed. In fact, David names the place after what happens, calling it baal Perazim. The Lord who breaks out, the Lord who smashes his enemies to pieces. One commentator says that the English equivalent of Baal Perazim would be Smasherton. By calling it Smasherton or Baal Perazim, David recognizes that God is the one who gives the victory here. God is the one who poured out these enemies like water. This is God's victory. Calling the place Baal-Perazim is significant because it also looks back to one of David's ancestors. In Genesis 38-29, Tamar gave birth to David's great-great-great-and-so-forth grandfather, Perez. You may remember that he was a twin. And he was named for the fact that he beat his twin brother out of the womb calling the place Baal-perazim, also looked ahead to David's greatest descendant, the one who had a victory over sin, death, and Satan. In Micah 2.13, the prophet speaks about the Messiah and describes Him as the one who would break open the way for the people of Israel. Break open, the same word, Perez, in Hebrew is used. Jesus Christ would be the true Baal-perazim for Israel. The true Lord who smashes His enemies to pieces and opens the way for the peace of His people. And that's the picture we see of Him in Revelation 19 as well. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. For now, see that God is revealed here in 2 Samuel 5 as the victor. The one who is repelling the enemies of His people and protecting the new king. God is also revealed as the true God. And we see that with these idols being abandoned too. In fact, there's a clever wordplay in the Hebrew that mocks the Philistines and their false gods. If we try to translate the wordplay, try to bring it across in English, it comes across something like, they left behind the ones that left them behind. They left behind the ones that left them behind. These idols are useless. Philistines didn't get anywhere with these idols. And David and his men take them away, and we learn from the parallel passage in Chronicles that they burned them. They're just good for firewood. That's about it. And there's a lesson here for all of us about idols. Idols will leave you behind so they're best left behind. Best abandoned. The Philistines didn't give up. They tried again. They tried in exactly the same place. And who knows what they thought would be different this time. Maybe they had more troops. Whatever the case may be, David takes the same approach. He inquires of Yahweh and again receives guidance via the Urim and Thummim. But this time he gets a different answer. This time, the Lord tells him not to do a frontal assault, but rather to take the Philistines from behind. And as he would do this, he would receive a divine sign about the right time to attack. David would hear the wind blowing through the tops of the balsam trees, and then he would know that this was the right time, this was the signal to move, to act decisively. In fact, it would be the signal that God himself had gone out to strike the Philistine army. And this is exactly the way that it went down. And David routed the Philistines and chased them across the countryside. It was a decisive victory. And who gets the credit for this victory? And that's where the last part of verse 24 is so important. Because there, God portrays Himself as a warrior. A warrior who leaps into battle and knocks off the Philistines. God is revealed here as someone with whom to be impressed. Someone whom we must stand in awe of. The divine warrior. And that's an image that comes back repeatedly in the Bible. And it's ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And nowhere more vividly than in the last book of the Bible. Revelation 19, we see Jesus revealed to us as the rider on the white horse. The one who is faithful and true. He judges and makes war. His name is the word of God. He rules with an iron scepter and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Nobody stands in his way. Some people think the book of Revelation is complicated. It's difficult to understand. And sometimes that's true if you start getting into the details. But if you're looking at the big picture, the message of the book of Revelation is not complicated. The book of Revelation is about Jesus and it's about His victory. He defends and preserves us against all our enemies. All His enemies. With Christ on our side, we're safe. And secure. he'll never let go of us never abandon us so let me encourage you again to fix your eyes on him on Christ the divine warrior King Jesus and as you look to this warrior for all your help remember also that his spirit lives in you and his spirit is a warrior spirit How do we know that? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that the Spirit has a sword. That sword is the Word of God. And the Spirit's pleasure is to have us wielding that sword against the enemies of the kingdom, against our old nature, against the world, against Satan. The Spirit's pleasure is to have us eager and willing participants in the good fight of the faith. Paul says in Ephesians 5.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Instead, Paul says, please Him, thank Him, love Him. And you do that by waging war on every spiritual enemy through His power, through His grace and through His Word. Let's now pray together. Father in Heaven, we praise You as the divine warrior. We worship Your Son as the rider on the white horse, a mighty and victorious soldier. We exalt Your Spirit as the one who bears the powerful sword. We want to please Him. We want to thank you and love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray for you to continue working in our lives so that we look to you for everything. Help us also as we grieve and as we deal with life's tragedies and difficulties. Help us to know and believe that your promises have no expiry date, but that you will always be faithful. We pray that you would give us more grace so that we would entrust ourselves more and more to you our faithful God and King. We thank You for the redeeming work of our Savior. Thank You that He lived a perfect life, that He died the death that satisfied Your wrath against sin. We praise You that our Savior Jesus is a one-woman King and that His love for us endures forever. We pray in His glorious name and we look forward to His glorious kingdom. Amen.